Blog Hello, Talk Radio. everybody out there throughout the entire planet. Dr. Carol Francis, and today's talk is about female sexuality and sensuality. It's about the way we are able to interface with our men on this planet as well as with our own bodies. We were given an opportunity to have a body that has wonderful, delightful, sensual experiences, orgasms, touch, warmth, tenderness, uh, being turned on, being excited, being a, getting a sense of tenderness through the skin, being touched gently and lovingly. And yet, at the very same time, sexuality for women has been a way of being able to dominate our senses, to dominate us, to make us feel longing and hopeful and wanting and also rejected, pushed away, and unable to really come to terms with what we are involved with in terms of a relationship with a man. Men have had the capacity to dominate female sexuality for thousands and thousands of years. Rape, ownership, being sold, having molestation, feeling like you are there to satisfy a man. Those are all very old and very long-time portions of our DNA, our history, and our civilization. So here we are as women, being highly sexual, wonderfully sensual, and at the same time needing to come to terms that it's also been used against us in many ways. I was recently involved with a symposium that had a lot to do with healing God's children. There were two wonderful doctors there, Dr. Chartria Collier and Dr. Betty Burston. And what I appreciated so much about these two women is that they were able to capture that, yes, women are very sensual beings with a great deal of sexual energy and that we should be able to interface with our own sensuality with a great deal of appreciation and love, but maybe we need to put priorities first. From their point of view, the first priority in line is to have a relationship with God. Now, they are women that have diverse spiritual backgrounds, and so I don't think they're trying to promote one particular perspective on a relationship with the divine, as much as to say that there is a higher being, whatever you would conceive that to be from your own perspective, and that somehow that needs to be the guiding light, the primary force, the primary focus that helps everything else, ourselves and our love relationships or our relationships with men that aren't so loving, into a very different perspective. So that to be able to say that God is first seems to be like it is a way of, on many planes, on many levels, to provide an opportunity for individuals to look at the cosmos and the relationship between men and women and the basis of the greater scheme of either the creative power, kindness, goodness, gentility, human humanitarian attitude, and things of that sort. I had an experience today in trying to train my, my cute little female dog who loves to go and run away and see what the neighborhood's all about. And in the process of trying to make sure she doesn't run away after many, many years of her Having this inclination, she was discovered, found in the middle of a street. She's a rescue dog, so she has run away from many a loving and maybe not so loving masters, so to speak. And in order to be able to train her to stay, 
they decided to put up an electric gate. I put that one off for a long time. Better that she stay in in a safe area than for her to escape where she could possibly be run over by a car or taken taken in by the local coyotes or just lost so that we would have to suffer a great deal of sadness and not having her around. But in the process of getting the electric gate up, it caused her tremendous amount of distress each and every time it would shock her. And the shocks aren't supposed to be that dramatic, but for her they were huge. So my heart went out to her when she had run beyond the electric gate and couldn't actually get back into our house. Now, why would I meander about this topic and talking about female sexuality and sensuality? I think that women have many times been conditioned by the electric shock of men maybe rejecting them or men misusing their sexuality or men finding them only desirable based on their willingness to give of their sexual parts over to a man or expose themselves or to become expressive of their sensuality before being expressive of their health or their self-respect or their intelligence so that a woman has become in many societies conditioned, uh, rightfully so, to be enslaved by the experience of having to be gorgeous, beautiful, expose her sexuality to men, to give her sexuality to men, all for the purpose of capturing an experience of being wanted. Um, of being desired, of being potentially taken care of. The interesting aspects also about Shortria Collier and Betty Burson is that they also represent different cultural perspectives of different women, Latino, Caucasian, Jewish, African-American. But the primary four cultures that were examined, and I don't know what the statistics are associated to various Asian cultures, But in the evaluation of those four cultures, not a complete profile, but at least something that begins the dialogue about this, there is a way in which different cultures experience their sexuality and sensuality, express it in terms of the relationship with the opposite sex, and also give it away so that they are in trouble with their pregnancies, with their transmitted sexual diseases, and also the way in which they are not loved necessarily as much as they are used. So that the process of being able to look at your culture and say, how does my culture, how does my father, how do my brothers, these are primary people that give you your first sense of sensuality and sexuality. Is there a great deal of exposure to treating the women as a tool, an object, a source of ridicule, a source of disrespect, a source of entertainment, a source of having and throwing away a source of exploitation? Or is there within the particular family culture, the familial setting, or within the cultural at large that women are highly respected, that they're considered the divas, the goddesses, the ones to honor, the matriarch, that no one is to treat a woman with disrespect or disregard, the old-fashioned sort of machismo, may be converted over to the feeling of being a gentleman and is a woman used to being having car doors open, uh, other doors, things paid for. You know, whatever way in which a culture says, here, we will respect and honor our women versus we don't really care about respecting our women. They are there for our exploitation and our use. 
this has had a tremendous amount of impact in cultures such as Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran. And what is uh, valuable in these particular cultures are the women who have been able to both embrace the aspects of being a woman in their culture and enjoy whatever way in which they would cover up their body, preserve themselves for their husbands and the privacy of their own houses, or the way they would would break out of their cultural um, guidelines. I could almost say constraints, but for some women, their guidelines or their way of expressing their devotion to the divine. In those cultures, it is currently quite clear that many of the women are not to be given voice, and then if they do, they can be punished in any number of disembodiments or rejection or being thrown out on the streets and be considered a disgrace. They can be in prison. Or they can be sold. They are not given necessarily a voice of being able to say, this is what we believe, this is what we need, and this is what we would like. In our Western society, after the era of the 1970s and equal rights amendments were, were passed, fought for hard, women do have very much a voice about their sexuality, whether they get pregnant or not, what they do with the pregnancy, maintaining their sense of health, being able to take jobs, earn their own income, so that we have very diverse roles for women all all over the planet. So to look at ourselves in terms of our sexual expression, that is, that we are the source of pleasure for men and that it is their longing, their biological longing to have intercourse, to touch a woman's breast, to be involved with a woman in terms of the skin and the flesh and the lust. And so for a woman to say, wait a minute, I have power. Many women can say this, but I have power over the men in terms of what I have to offer that man. And I do not need to give it away in order for the man to say, yes, I find it desirable. I do not need to sell it. I do not need to offer it freely. I do not need to tease with it. I do not need to know if I have worth or value. I can go ahead and respect myself knowing that I have this power to be able to invest and go ahead and offer a sexual intimacy if I know that I am with a man who is going to offer honor, respect, protection, kindness, uh, trustworthiness. So women, the whole idea of exploring sexuality and sensuality in this day, 2011, is the idea of being able to evolve ourselves to recognize that it is our sexuality that gives us one commodity, one item of our power. It is not our sexuality that keeps us powerless. As I look at this little dog that has been traumatized by the electric gate, I realize that she experienced a sense of her own vulnerability because the way she was conditioned by the little electrical impulses that were going through her collar, oh my gosh, it's just heartbreaking. So then I have to think about women and how we have been conditioned to give away our power and then through offering sexual intimacy and then afterward feeling awful as if someone has stolen the kiss or someone has stolen the sexual intimacy of the moment or of the body, as opposed to being able to say, yes, we can sexually engage, but only if you prove to be an honorable man. Now, in talking to men about this in a recent radio program that was offered by Melinda Clarkson called Pillow Talk, 
the men that were there present, which were four, each did say that they really, truly, deeply wish to feel like they are with a woman who makes them want to be a better man. And therefore, if we as women look at our men, not out of being diminutive, bossy, ragging, or antagonistic, but rather out of being able to look at them and say, you will be a better man, and we will have an intimacy that will satisfy you, and that therefore I will feel honored and loved and respected, and my sensuality will be awoken in the arms of a man that is going to be very honoring, a man that ought to be a better man, a better lover, a better partner, a better co-creator, perhaps a better family-oriented person. So our sexual and our sensuality is in that degree a power as opposed to an electric shock that wraps itself around our neck and tells us to comply or that our feelings are to be hurt when we feel so rejected after we've given it away. Another aspect of our sexuality I think would be very valuable for us to explore is that our sexuality changes throughout a month. It changes throughout decades, and it is a, a part of life to have our hormonal state govern many respects of our sexual hunger. And if we are not engaged with a man who is able to charm us out of the hormonal phases when we do not have sexual lustful energies, the libido of life, then it is very difficult for us to make a shift until our hormones begin to shift. We are biochemical women. We are in very much of a state where we are controlled by the hormones that bathe our brains and that affect every single tissue in our body that's associated to sensuality and sexuality. Even the taste of food will taste different throughout the course of a menstrual cycle. Definitely the experience of being touched is very different based on where you are in your menstrual cycle. And feelings of depression and anxiety that come with the various input of the progesterone and estrogen dance will also very much impact whether or not you wish to be engaged in an intimately fun or to disengage in a situation where it feels like we are dragged down or overwhelmed. Around the process of childbirth, our sexuality is also very altered. Not only is our body now belonging to a child as we are pregnant, but our hormones and the process thereafter, including while we are nursing, are very much geared toward wanting to and have the interaction of intimacy with the fleshiness of our little infant and that our energies and our focus are, in terms of our hormones, not released to be interested in the sexual intrigues or advancements of a husband. And if during this time in our husbands need to truly be the best men that they can be, because it's the process of them rising to the occasion, not of their own lust, but of their woman and their child's existence, that will actually endear the woman to the man. It is one of the hardest tribulations of a marriage during the first three years of a child's birth. If you have multiple children, it is whatever the first two years of each child would be. You have three children, you have nine years where the sexual energies will be compromised. Uh, it is very common for divorce to process to be 
thought of to begin to take place because of a birth of a child within the first two years of that child's birth. Um, very difficult for a man to not feel the sexual interest and intimacy with their woman. Women are gaining weight. They're exhausted. They're overwhelmed with responsibilities, but they're turned on by the presence of their child in a way that they're not turned on by their husband. So the best that a husband can do, truly, is to note the sensuality of a woman as she is present with her infant and be able to harness the capacity to embrace the triad that can now exist. It is in that process the woman will begin to feel the sensual and sexual attractiveness to their husbands. Now, this, of course, is stereotypic. Uh, Not all women are going to experience the birth of their child and the changes in their body and the hormones in this exact way. And I could give many examples of exceptions. And those that are listening to this will go, well, uh, others will go, yes. Others will go, hmm, interesting. So that it would be a pleasure to be able to hear the variations of the thing that you each have to offer. Another aspect, though, that I'd like to speak about stereotypically is as you enter into menopause, premenopausal, menopause, and postmenopausal hormonal process. Now, actually, as soon as a woman no longer feels the burden of child-rearing, as soon as a woman feels like they have the identity in place in terms of career, or as soon as they feel like their feet are sturdy back on the ground, learning to be themselves once again and not just the caregiver of a number of people, there actually seems to be also simultaneously an insertion of testosterone into many women during that time. And the testosterone boosts their capacity to be more aggressive and assertive, giving them a little bit more of that confidence that comes across with dynamic. And we also see simultaneously women re-engaging in their sexuality and their sensuality during this phase of their life as well. As they begin to approach perimenopause, which is right before the menopause begins to have its definite symptoms, the perimenopause may actually still be a place where their sensuality and sexuality are engaged, but their body is beginning to change. And therefore, the weight, the accumulation of fattiness, the lack of energy begins to also be present for many women during this time. If they're within the context of a loving relationship, then this time is an easier process. But many times, the men go through a comparable process. Their hormones are being affected as well. But midlife crisis can set in for a man because they now find themselves having the attraction for the younger female body that still harnesses the high estrogen high sexual useful look. It is the survival of the species in many respects for an older man to want to propagate more children with a younger man. This is something that comes down from our DNA whether we like it or not. I am not proposing that that's what you should do because relationships are destroyed really do miss out on the opportunity to grow old together, to really know and be connected, to harness and raise that are deep and full and complete. But during this time, there's a hormonal dance that takes place between the men and women with their sexuality and their sensuality that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, if you're in the process of being in your 20s and you're anticipating being married forever, you need to very much stay awake to what happens to the sexuality and the sensuality for men and women during the midlife crisis. And again, for men, That's a hormonal change as well. It's right before they're going to start having estrogen added to their system. It's when they can 
still move their bodies. They can still develop the musculature of a younger body. They still have strong brains, but they've been accomplished in the career often, and their women don't seem to have that much sexual energy. Um, it's a time when they want to make sure that they don't live the rest of their life without what they want to have all along, at least in the Western society. Women, in contrast, or in similarity, are going through very similar. They, they, their lives are coming back to them. They want to be able to engage in career and making and decisions and their self-esteem and their self-image is often stronger. Now, we're going to see a switch in this as we see the generations in their 20s now that the women are very aggressive, progressive, and not willing at all to find themselves as being inferior to men. However, they still do the dance of the hormones. So it would be very interesting to see how these women grow into their 40s and to their late, late 40s and see how the influx of testosterone into the women and the estrogen into their men affects their relationships in terms of the sexuality and sensuality of it. And it has, uh, well, I'm going to need to stop here for the day, as I can see. So let's continue the dialogue. Write, text me. You can contact me at drcarolfrancis.com. You can call me at 310-543-1824. And in addition, feel free to check out the website at evolvingwomensconsciousness.com. We look forward to talking to you soon. Bye-bye.